church is in a season right now that is called Advent. And the church around the world takes the last four Sundays before Christmas, and Advent really means coming or arrival. And so it is a time that we take to prepare for the coming of Christmas and also the coming of Christ into our world. And it is also, at the same time, you know, we are in a season of waiting for his second coming, right? So Advent is also a picture of that, that we are in an in-between season, really, and waiting for Christ's second coming. So the themes of Advent are hope and joy, love, and peace. And the church has assigned readings for each of these. And so today, I would like to focus on hope. It is an Advent theme. So I just want you to pause a moment. When you hear the word hope, what comes to your mind? And what do you feel in your body? Thank you. And I want you to connect with that. We often use the word hope when we talk about the weather. Oh, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow or something like that. And we're talking about a probability, like optimism based on the odds kind of thing. If someone asked you, what does hope mean to you? What would you say? The interesting thing is that in Hebrew, the word hope and the word wait are exactly the same word. There is no conceptual difference. So when Jesus told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come, you know, he didn't really have something passive in mind. Um, it's one and the same activity. So in English, hope sometimes can imply passivity or maybe even boredom. But that is not what Jesus had in mind. So how do we then wait without losing hope and without giving up and without allowing disappointment and disillusionment to take over our hearts? So I want to take you to Luke 1 this morning and look at the story of two different people. And before we read it, I do want you to get in touch with some of the promises that the Lord has given you, some of the hopes that you have, and allow scripture to speak to your heart. What do we do with the things in our lives that affect how hopeful we live? And, you know, when life turns out so different than we thought it would, and when disappointment and disillusionment and grief, you know, when we're just waiting for promises to be fulfilled. I think Nico and I had an experience of that in our recent move to, well, not so recent, but four years ago, you know, when we came to Saskatchewan, we thought we're moving for one reason, and it kind of turns out, it looks like it's a whole other reason altogether. And the Lord knew that when he sent us, but there is still in the human heart, you know, that's when grief wants to settle in and disillusionment. And not that all of that is bad, but it does take an internal process for us. Okay, so before we look, read one. Before we read Luke 1, I want you to know that this was a pretty dark time in the nation of Israel. They hadn't heard a prophetic voice in the last 400 years. 
Um, they were under Roman occupation and had a tyrant king rule and reign in this place. And so that's kind of where this story comes to play. So we're going to start reading in verse 5 all the way to 24. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient of the wisdom of the just to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old, I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went, home. He went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. So the scripture is very clear here that Zechariah and his wife both walked blamelessly before the Lord, that they were righteous, and followed the commandments. The Bible tells us they are both very old. It's actually cross-referenced with Sarah's old age in Genesis. And the reality of their life is that it was very painful because they didn't have children. And in their culture, childlessness wasn't just a secret grief in some ways. It was, you know, if you couldn't have a child back then, that was looked at as you had committed a sin, or there was a curse on your life. 
And so for Elizabeth, probably more than Zacharias, this was a very, very painful thing. And something that wasn't going away and that they were confronted with um, on a daily basis. And the Bible here is very clear that their barrenness was not a consequence of sin and not a consequence of a curse on their lives, like something that they had done or that, that, that they had failed to do. And I want you to take a moment and apply that to your own life. You know, is there an area of barrenness in your heart, in your life? And maybe the Lord wants to speak to you this morning and say, this is not because of a mistake that you have made. I think there's people here this morning that need to hear that. Barrenness is not always due to what we have done or failed to do. So at the time when Zacharias enters the temple, there was approximately 18,000 priests in this nation. Isn't that wild? Because have you ever looked at it on a map? Pretty small country compared to Canada. And there's 18,000 priests there serving at the time. And the Bible tells us that those special duties were assigned by lot. So basically, that means that once in a lifetime, if they're lucky, I guess, a priest had the opportunity to go in and bring those incense offerings that Zechariah is performing on that day when Gabriel shows up. So this shows that the sovereignty of God is clearly at work here. You know, he is in control of the timing in our lives. So Zechariah was in the temple. You know, he's a priest. He's old. He's done this all his life. He's doing his thing, you know, burning this incense. And basically, it's a symbol of the whole prayers of the nation rising up to the Lord. And all of a sudden, while he's, you know, doing this, Gabriel shows up. And he says, your prayers have been heard. Well, imagine you're Zacharias for a moment. You know, Zach probably thought, well, my prayers have been heard. Which one? The one that Lizzie and I have been praying all our lives, like, for a son? Or what we're all doing right now, like, you know, the whole nation, like, which one? And so, you know, the story. Um, the angel tells him, and this wonderful thing is happening, that God is answering the secret prayer that Zach and Lizzie had been praying all their lives. And he's answering the prayers of the whole nation all in one event. Isn't that amazing? So it all comes together in the promise and the declaration that Gabriel you know, brings that basically John the Baptist will be born. Because they're all related. John is Jesus' cousin and you know, his call is to prepare the way for Jesus. That's why the second watchword is prepare. So the astounding thing is, how does Zacharias respond to this angel that shows up? He says, how shall I know this? 
That is like saying, I can never be made to believe this. Just pause for a moment. He's the high priest of the nation of Israel. And that's his response. And you know what Gabriel says to him? I am Gabriel. I was sent here from the presence of God. And who the heck are you? So let's just say not the most glorious moment in his life. <laughs> so then what happens next? Zacharias can't talk anymore. And you know, some would look at that as a consequence, but really it was the mercy and grace of God that stopped Zacharias from speaking any more unbelief and any more doubt into this situation, you know? Now, it's easy to dismiss Zacharias as a bonehead, but how often are we a lot like him? You know? Complaining and wondering about God's faithfulness because the dishwasher broke. You know, how do we talk about the things in our lives when we're in a season of waiting and in a season of meantime? You know, there was a promise. The fulfillment hasn't happened yet. Clearly, we are in the meantime. So how are we going to live there in this meantime? So how does the story of Zacharias speak to the barren parts in your life? the barren areas that you have promises from the Father for. And the areas where you maybe also thought that God has passed you by. Okay, about six months later, Zacharias make, uh, Gabriel, sorry, the angel Gabriel, Gabriel makes another visit. I want to read that to you. It is Luke 1, and we're basically just continuing to read here. Starting verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and hear a son, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So 
Mary has a visitor. Gabriel shows up at her house. And one of the first things he says to her is, don't be afraid because you are highly favored. Now, the interesting thing is that this word favored um, means, you know, grace freely given. But this special word here that Gabriel uses is only used twice in the New Testament. And when something like this happens, like what you said, you know, they, they use other words in all other scenarios, that's quite significant. So I'm going to take you to the other spot where that word is used, which is Ephesians 1, verse 6. And it talks here about, you know, that we are adopted, that um, he has given us every spiritual blessing in, grace, in Christ, um, that we don't always feel spiritually blessed, and that we somehow wonder sometimes if we miss out on these blessings. But basically it says, you know, that, we're, that we were before the, the world was made, that we were predestined to be adopted into God's family. And then it says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the phrase here, to the praise of his glorious grace, that is the same word. And what that basically means is that, you know, that you and I, are just as highly favored in the Lord's eyes as Mary. Isn't that amazing? Let's just think about your life for a moment. You know, you are highly favored by the Lord. Can you let that sink in? Can you let that touch here? Highly favored by the Lord. And, you know, our view of favor, I think it's quite different than God's. I mean, look at the situation here. Mary is about 14 to 15 years old. She's unmarried, and now she's pregnant. Nobody in our culture would call that favored. Correct? So, maybe the Lord wants to reframe what favor means to us. Because sometimes it's hard to believe that we're favored when things aren't working out. So put your hand on your heart and say, I'm highly favored by the Father. Yeah, it's the truth. What else did Gabriel say to Mary? Don't be afraid, Mary. And why should she not be afraid? Because she was highly favored. And she was really afraid. But what I found rem find remarkable in this story is that she didn't jump to conclusions. She kept listening to the messenger. And take note here that Mary's response in contrast to Zacharias is, um, how will this be? So note here that we, it, it's not like that we can't ask questions. You know, she wasn't quite sure how this was going to happen. And she asks for clarification. And there clearly is a desire to be further instructed how this is going to take place. 
I find that astonishing that, you know, it, it just pops out at you. It wasn't a problem that she had questions about it. It was more her heart attitude, you know, like she refers to herself as a handmaiden, which back then was the lowest kind of female servant. And it just shows how much Mary trusted God, which led to her submitting to the Father in body, soul, and spirit. She like gives herself fully. And she says, she puts her yes to the promise and says, be it unto me according to your word. She desires that it may be so, and she trusts God with the timing, and she trusts his sovereignty. And the puzzling thing is that all those details, like her reputation and illegitimate pregnancy, you know, what if Joseph, Joseph says, well, I don't want to get married anymore. You know, all those details she leaves up to God. And isn't it interesting that one and the same thing in these two stories, pregnancy, removes shame and disgrace from one woman and jeopardizes the reputation and potential cause, cause, potentially causes disgrace for another, but both said yes to God. And so how do the responses of Zacharias and Mary inform our lives today? Do you want to help me with closing? Mary's surrender and willingness to wait is a remarkable example for us today. And if I'm honest, I can sometimes see more parallels to Zacharias's response in my own life and heart. So when I prayed for today and for what the Lord had for you, the Church of Warman. I really had a sense that Jesus wants to show himself to you as the one that comes alongside you to carry your burden. Because I think what affects our hope level a lot is when, you know, the longer we live and our life just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And I mean, these two people that we talked about this morning, Mary was so young when the angel came. And, you know, a part of me when I read this thought, well, it's easy to say yes to God when you're 14. You have no idea yet how life really works, you know. And Zacharias was old and he had waited his whole life and that's a lot you know that's a harder spot to be in in a way because he's lived and prayed and has faithfully served his whole life you know and it just didn't happen until he was really old and obviously you know the story points out that God is sovereign and he's in control of the timing and we are not but what if we're more like Zacharias and we just have to wait a whole lot longer you know, that has an effect on our heart, doesn't it? And so my sense when I prayed for this morning was, you know, Christmas, the incarnation, we celebrate that Jesus came. It actually, incarnation means God wrapped in human flesh. 
And, you know, the gift of Christmas is that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And when I was praying, I just had this picture, actually, of Jesus walking alongside each one of you. And he was carrying a cross, and it was like he was offering to care and carry your burden so that the weight of your life and the weight of the disappointment and the weight of disillusionment, the weight of loss and grief, you know, that's where the cross and where the rubber hits the road, that we don't have to strive and work that out on our own, but that he is a co-suffering God right there with us, offering to carry that for us. Does that make sense? So biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God, to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. So Christian hope looks back to the cross in order to look forward. I want to finish with two quotes that I really love by men that you probably know and have read about, like you probably are familiar with the writing. The first one is Henry Nouwen. And he says that active waiting means to be present fully to the moment in the conviction that something is happening where you are and that you want to be present to it. A waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, who believes that this moment is the moment. And then the second one is by Eugene Peterson. That one's my favorite. And he says, hoping doesn't mean nothing. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. <clears throat> wow. Nadi said something really significant, which I wanted to just, you know, Zechariah was old, but there was another man who was old and who knew how to wait. Who was that? Abraham. But in that time of Jesus, there was another man. Simeon, right? Simeon waited for the Messiah all of his life because of a promise God has given him. That he will not die before he sees the Messiah. When the Messiah came into the temple, Simeon was there. And I think that's a response Jesus is inviting us, no matter how old we are. To say, like, I want to be there. I, I will not give up, give up hope. I will not stop believing, no matter how dire the circumstances. And I, I really feel like, Nadi said that um, as we're part of the waiting, the best place to wait 
is in the presence of God. Amen? And so even today, no matter what the burden is, um, Candelasca is like, we normally end with, uh, with communion. It's like, well, that's, I will never say no to communion. Because the best place to wait for the promises of God is right here. In the remembrance that we are not have to wait alone, but that he is right there with us. You know, Paul talks about it. He's just like, the cup we bless, isn't it the participation in the life of God? In Christ. The bread that we bless, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? So when you feel tired and exhausted and so like, I don't know if I can hope, the place to wait is right here. Right at the table to say, Jesus, and it's not about um, trying to suppress our disappointments or our hopelessness. There has, in this last season for us, there has been a lot of tears in our home. But as and, and Nadia, you didn't share that, but I think this is so important. In our devotions, in the time of bringing the hopelessness before him, waiting at the table, you know what happens? We, the Bible says in First John, it says, we love because he first loved us, right? So love that drives out fear is perfected in us as we come into the presence of God. And I understand that the table is not the only place of encounter. But it is one of the powerful encounters which Jesus himself said, every time you come, do this in remembrance and participate with me. It's the covenant meal, right? And so I, I want to just invite you to not say like, oh, I'll just have to suck it off. But, but, but to come in this place of saying, yes, there is hopelessness. There is a, a, a despair which came in. And to bring it to him and say, Jesus, I bring it right at your feet. And we want to encounter you and desire you and wait for you. And I, I'm doing that on a regular basis that I say, Jesus, my heart has become hard. Tired of waiting. Tired of looking for, will you come and soften it again?